Welcome to this special edition of the Fertility Podcast to mark Fertility Awareness Week in the UK 2020, where we've compiled some of our chats within our infertility support category to give you an idea of what we talk about and how you can find lots of support routes from them. Now, before we rejoin some of our previous guests, this episode of the Fertility Podcast is sponsored by Parler, a leading digital health company changing the conversation around fertility. Now, it was founded by Lena Chan, who herself struggled with pregnancy loss and trouble conceiving. And the Parlor community is here to help you on every step of your fertility journey. They've created an app so you can get all the fertility support you need wherever you need it. And the app gives you access to trusted information and support from a range of fertility experts, including nutritionists, fertility nurses and fertility coaches, including me. Now, from Cycle Day and IVF meditations to expert guides on topics like sperm health and PCOS, the app has it all. And to celebrate the launch of it, Parlour are giving Fertility Podcast listeners £100 worth of discount on in-app features. You just need to go to myparlour.com to create an account or download the app on the App Store and use the code PARLOR100 when choosing your membership plan. Now, in the first of our conversations, we're going to rejoin Dr. Christine Akechi, who Kate and I met in a very noisy British library in the days where we could meet up with people in places. Christine is a consultant, obstetrician and gynaecologist at Queen Charlotte's Hospital in London. She's also an early pregnancy specialist, but is also an advocate for women's health and is particularly interested in the ethnic disparity of health outcomes among black and Asian women in the UK. Here she explains about the confusing narratives within the BAME community about fertility education and infertility from her own experience growing up. When I was growing up, you know, you have both obvious signs and conversations and also the sort of messages that you take on subconsciously about how virile and fertile I as a black woman am supposed to be. So, you know, if we think back to cartoons and films we watch, it's always sort of black women with five or six children and then invariably my mother would talk about some mythical great-grandmother who had 20 children. And so you, you sort of take on these messages, right? And I think it's then extremely hard when you then get to your reproductive years and you find that there may be challenges in that area. And the difficulty is that if you grow up with these narratives and frameworks about how fertile you're supposed to be, you have a bit of an argument within yourself as to whether it's true, whether it's valid, and if you're having these difficulties. And then you may find that you have very few people to talk to and reflect upon some of these issues. And the other problem is, is that because there is the stigma that abounds, it's most people don't talk about it. Now, I have to say that in a way, there is very much a conflict between infertility and talking about it very much in, in the Western world and how it's approached in certain other cultures. So my family are Nigerian and um, inherently the whole idea about who is a mother and what is a mother is much more broader than it is in Western society. So, you know, in Western society, a mother is somebody who has a child that shares their DNA and they deliver that child via their body cavity. Whereas in many other cultures, actually a mother is anybody who takes on the role of looking after children, whether or not that child shares their DNA. And so there are many, many stories I grew up with of women in my family who sort of unofficially adopted children. And that was seen as a very normal thing. But as sort of, you know, cultures from black and Asian communities take on a lot of the Western narratives, we find that there is this greater stigma and, and sort of push to have to be a mother for a child that shares their DNA. 
Um, and we're seeing that that real sort of conflict, I think, between these two ideas about what motherhood means in the first place. We also discussed the figures from the HFEA in terms of accessing IVF treatment and why in 2018 there were 43,000 white British women accessing treatment and in a stark contrast, only 1,386 black women and why the numbers were so low. So it's a number of factors. Number one, you have to have the awareness of infertility as an issue in the first place. So if we go back to the beginning, if you are not aware or have a basic education as to how your body works, it's going to be very difficult to then identify when there is a problem. Because that's the first thing. Mm. The second thing is we've talked about the stigma when it comes to difficulty with conceiving. And so that presents a very huge barrier to asking for help and presenting for care. The third is that we have the religious components. So I was made aware of a friend of a friend who had declined any sort of assisted reproductive technology to help her and her couple to conceive, her and her partner to conceive, because she said it was against her religion, which was sort of news to me because I knew this girl to be Catholic. And so when I asked what she meant, um, she mentioned um, their sort of concern about what happened to unused embryos. And so that opens my mind to this idea of how this presents a conflict for many people when it comes to trying to seek um, help for infertility. And then we have to talk about the financial violence, um, which is a huge one. So when you look at the majority of women or couples who are able to access fertility treatment in the first place, they are normally in a sort of middle to higher income bracket anyway. And these are people who have to access fertility care outside of the NHS. And so that is a huge barrier for so many women and couples um, seeking help. When it comes to the NHS and seeking help by the NHS, well, you have to be aware of the political lottery and you have to be aware of the barriers in the first place, for example, in terms of age and whether you have you know, children already. And what I found is that so many women are just unaware of the sort of barriers in the first place, so that by the time they do present, it's um, almost too late. And then finally, we need to talk about the impact of other medical conditions that can stop women from conceiving in the first place, and most notably fibroids, which you know, has a greater prominence in the black and Asian community. Now, knowing where you can get advice and support for whatever is going on with your treatment is a huge part of why we make the Fertility Podcast. And our infertility support episodes highlight the many places you can go for whatever is going on with you. Kate and I chatted with Amy Benny, who is a trustee and chair of the Daisy Network, about the support it offers to women dealing with POI or premature ovarian insufficiency, as you might better know it. Daisy is the only charity that supports girls and women with premature ovarian insufficiency. That term does seem a bit, you know, confusing if you've never heard of it before, which a lot of people won't have. In layman's terms, it basically means where your ovaries stop working before the age of natural menopause, so usually before the age of 40. So we support women and girls who have gone through that diagnosis, some as young as teens. We provide support in terms of medical advice, local support to meet others in your area and also we aim to raise awareness of the condition within the medical community as well because GPs usually aren't too familiar with the condition so it is quite a funny one to diagnose and often people get you know different diagnosis and different treatment depending on who you see so we are aiming to raise awareness of POI within the medical community but with people who have been diagnosed with it. And how common 
is POI then, Amy? So it varies depending on age. So Mm. one in a hundred women under the age of 40 can get diagnosed with it. One in a thousand women under 30 and one in 10,000 women under 20. Those statistics are from spontaneous POI, which means that it happens for an unknown reason. Obviously, there is some other women that get diagnosed with it and the numbers for that vary, but it's for things like uh, cancer treatments, um, some chemotherapies, radiotherapies can then induce menopause. Uh, So those are additional women as well. And you talked about trying to raise awareness within the medical professions. Is there an issue with the length of time it takes to diagnose POI? Absolutely, yeah. So the diagnosis, it's a simple blood test, but the problem comes where a lot of women will go with various symptoms and it is just put down to to hormones or, you know, fluctuating hormones or due to being on the pill. So, I mean, I can, I can go into a bit more discussion about the actual symptoms soon, but often GPs, especially when younger women go to them, don't expect it to be early menopause. So it is quite often just brushed off as hormonal changes. Some GPs will just handle it themselves. Others get sent to specialists. So there is no set routine of diagnosis and that's kind of where the, the problem comes and it can often be a case of women going back and forth to the GP with a whole host of various symptoms before they actually get the tests for POI. Okay so tell us about these symptoms and how might a woman start to notice that things aren't quite right and what would she present with her GP to what would be her main concerns? Yeah so Again, it varies depending on the age. So for for younger women, for those under 20, it can often be the case that they don't get periods at all. So they never actually start their periods. Often it's a case where they get to 15 or 16, go to the doctors and then the tests will will be done because the NICE guidelines suggest that if you haven't started your periods by 15, then POI investigations should be done. For a lot of girls, they might start their periods once and then they never have them again. And again, this is where the problem uh, lies because a lot of GPs will just think, oh, you know, your hormones are just settling down. We'll wait a couple of years and it gets ignored. When it comes to getting answers about why you aren't getting pregnant, unexplained infertility is the most frustrating diagnosis you can get and one of the most common, unfortunately. So we spoke with Professor Luciano Nardo from the Reproductive Health Group who talked about what unexplained infertility actually means and what other tests you can think about requesting. Well, unexplained subfertility is when no cause of subfertility has been found. Clearly, investigations have to be carried out in the first instance to identify a possible cause of fertility problems. And unexplained doesn't really stand when the patient comes for the first time to the clinic and say, we are fit and healthy and uh, I got regular periods and uh, we think we don't have a problem. I always tell my patients that in order for me to reassure them that there is no an underlying cause, then some basic investigations will have to be carried out on both partners. Unexplained is, uh, to some extent for some patients, a comfort at the stage when they do not believe they need to embark on investigations or further investigations, or is also used in some instances as a a cause to delay embarking on IVF treatment. We always make sure that the couple has had 12 consecutive months of uh, unprotected sexual intercourse. And uh, clearly, history for both female and male partner is taken. And if there are concerns about the fertility potential, then 
that is the first instance when it's no longer unexplained. Normally, we would be recommending that uh, investigations such as a semen analysis and uh, a further, ma- further man, a pelvic ultrasound scan and a hormone profile f- uh, for the female are done. If the, these tests come back as normal, uh, again, doesn't reassure them that there's no problem, but simply that the tests that we carried out have failed to demonstrate a non-cause of fertility problems. So, Lucio, what I'm really interested in is, is do you think that unexplained infertility really is unexplained or do we just not yet have the science to identify the problem? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think unexplained infertility exists. I think okay. that uh, we, we don't have all the diagnostic tools to identify all the fertility problems. And the percentage of couples that I see in my clinic today uh, in 2019 with a possible unexplained subfertility is significantly smaller than the percentage of couples I I used to see 10 years ago and 15 years ago, simply Mm. because the technology, the clinical tools and the laboratory tools have enabled me and professionals like me sitting in clinics to identify some causes of subfertility that were not at the time a a non-problem. And they're no longer accepted as being unexplained. So an example is a a test called sperm DNA fragmentation test. We know that uh, men with uh, high DNA damage, for whatever reason they have high DNA damage in the sperm, um, they are more likely than not to suffer from uh, subfertility. And if they do get their partners pregnant, uh, then to experience a miscarriage. So... Relying only on a semen analysis is uh, perhaps too simplistic when it comes to a clinical setting and sitting in front of a patient say, well, you don't have a problem. Um, I could say the, the semen analysis shows that you have normal sperm parameters, but I cannot say if the sperm is uh, healthy enough to fertilize successfully an egg. So this is an example. So a percentage of men that used to come to clinic with a normal semen analysis and they will say, well, you don't have a problem. Actually, they do have a problem. And, uh, but we needed additional tests um, to demonstrate what the problem is. So with a test like that sperm DNA fragmentation test, is that likely to be something that is only suggested once a cycle's failed? Or is it if there's not enough information in that early sperm test? I don't think uh, at that stage we are talking about embarking on, on any fertility treatment cycles. It's just the fertility journey as a diagnostic test. Okay. So um, we normally would recommend um, men that embark on a fertility journey as coming to the clinic and not being able to conceive with their partners for 12 consecutive months, um, not just to have a semen analysis, but we combine the semen analysis with the sperm DNA fragmentation test, so to gain more information about sperm parameters, but also the sperm potential. And in your clinic, how many couples with a diagnosis of unexplained infertility will go on to conceive either naturally um, or with IVF, would you say? Uh, well, there are two different, obviously, approaches. Mm. So we know, we know about 20, 20-25% of couples with unknown factors of subfertility, they end, end up conceiving naturally. We'll rejoin the episode in a minute and you're going to hear from Lucy, who never imagined she'd be a runner and now she's encouraging women all over the UK to do the same. First though, I want to remind you about Parlour, brand new app, 
putting a toolkit for your fertility journey literally in the palm of your hands. From expert health guides and especially created meditation programs to at-home hormone tests and an online community, the app has it all. And for a limited time, Fertility Podcast listeners can get £100 worth of discount on in-app features. You just need to go to myparlor.com, create an account or download the app on the App Store and use the code parlor 100 when choosing your membership plan. Dead simple. Now, all too often, a diagnosis of unexplained infertility leads to fertility treatments, which is what Lucy, who has founded the Rainbow Running Club, talks to me about in this next chat. Lucy shares her experience of multiple miscarriages and how when she went through fertility treatment, it led to OHSS, ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. And she talks about how low Lucy was after all she'd been through. And then how she found her way by putting on her trainers and going out running. So our story started five years ago when we decided that we wanted to start having a family and we fell pregnant quite quickly but I had a miscarriage at seven weeks and then nothing. Two years of nothing happening. We had all the tests, they couldn't find any reason why but we went down the IVF route because they couldn't understand why I wasn't getting pregnant naturally Um, and on our second attempt of IVF we had our daughter so we were really fortunate. And did you get funding for your treatment? No, we didn't. We we got to the two-year mark, which was the point we needed to be at to qualify, and then they changed the rules in our area. It had to be three years, and by that point, we didn't want to wait any longer, so we decided to go private. So you're still unexplained? Yes, still unexplained. So we found a lovely clinic, went to them. Uh, Our first round of IVF, I got ovarian hyperstimulation, so we had to freeze all of our embryos, um, and then when I was better, we did a frozen cycle, and I got pregnant, so that was amazing. Just tell me a bit about the OHSS, how poorly were you? Um, I blew up like a balloon, I I couldn't eat anything, I couldn't drink anything, I was in such agony, and I couldn't move. And they said that if they went ahead and transferred the embryo that, and I got pregnant, it would continue and it would get worse. Did you know much about it at the time it no, happened? No, I didn't. And I knew it was something that might possibly happen, but I wasn't at risk of it happening. Yeah. They didn't expect it to happen, so they were quite surprised by it as well. Um, and how long were you poorly? It took a good month for really? my body to so go to back to normal. work and yeah well at this point I was at home so I was really grateful for that because okay. it meant that I could just yeah go and back to normal in bed yes yeah because I just couldn't move I was in such pain so, and so what, what do they what do you what do you have to do you I just had to have anti-sickness injections right. and then just drink lots and just rest and wait for everything to recover so I knew that it wasn't the right time to go ahead with the transfer because You're I just scared. I was scared. Because yeah. I think OHSS, we talk about it more, but I still don't think we talk about it enough. And the people that have, have kind of had it, it's been such a shock. And I think, I know like you say, you weren't at risk. And I know it's hard for the clinics to know. Yes. Well, I think the, the certain criteria that mean that, that women are at risk. But I think we need to have more conversation about the impact of it. And, yes. and just that, that awareness of, because it's so debilitating, isn't it? It is. Like, and I didn't expect that. And I was really frightened because I thought, I expected to feel a bit bloated afterwards, but I couldn't lay down. Like All my in- organs were like... Wow squashed so it's it's a reaction is it yes it's a reaction so when they remove the eggs from the ovaries the sacs that they were in then fill with fluid so both of my ovaries are like the size of grapefruits and then obviously all that fluid in your body is just putting so much pressure and the pain 
So I was just like... Is it constant pain or yeah, the pain, no, right? So there's no pain, pain relief? Not really, because as well, I wasn't sure if I was going to go ahead with the transfer. So you have to keep up all the oh, right. hormones and yeah. everything. So we got to day five when it would have been my transfer day and I went in and we all decided that it wasn't the right time to go ahead. Because okay. I just thought, I can't eat or drink, this isn't the right environment. Yeah, I want to be in a good place. Yeah, this isn't the right environment. So I was really, really upset that then obviously everything got put on hold. And support-wise at that point, with the clinic giving you counselling, did you have anybody else? I mean, were you in the Insta community at that point? I wasn't, no. Um, and when we were going through all of this, I don't think there really was the Insta community that there is today. Um, so I had a few friends that had been through it who I could speak to, but yeah, I was really low afterwards because I felt really disappointed that you have all your hopes pinned on something and then it didn't happen. And what about your other half? How did he feel? He was really good. He's very much more just what will be will be yeah. and it wasn't meant to be that time so you know let's just get better and we'll try again so I think we waited three months and then we started the frozen cycle and then we got pregnant so and were you how nervous were you starting the frozen cycle knowing what the drugs had done to you before not as because I knew I didn't have to have my eggs collected yeah, it's different stages but if I ever had to get to the point again where I'd have to have my eggs collected I think I would seriously consider not doing it just because I wouldn't want to go through that again I know that they would be aware of it this time but it would really put me off having to do it again so yes then after I had my daughter I miraculously got pregnant naturally oh. um, which took me by surprise yeah because um, I didn't expect it would ever happen and sadly seven weeks later I had a miscarriage and then I got pregnant again which again was a surprise quite quickly afterwards and then we got to our seven week scan and we had a heartbeat and everything looked as it should be and I felt pregnant so I thought okay we've we've got over the hurdle because my previous two miscarriages had been at seven weeks so we'd got to seven weeks we'd had a heartbeat went to our 10 week scan and there was no heartbeat mm. and I had a mis miscarriage which really hit me because I hadn't fully believed that it was going to happen because I don't think you ever do but I had started to think well, maybe this time we're going to come home with a baby so to find out there wasn't a heartbeat was really difficult and I was really low and I didn't really know what I was going to do and I knew I had to pull myself together. How old was your daughter at this point? She had just turned one. Right, so really little. Yes. Um, so I had to be a mum. So I had to, I couldn't hide, I couldn't, I had to carry on. But I, I didn't feel like myself anymore. I felt like five years of being on this roller coaster and I'd lost myself and I didn't know what to do. So at the time I was reading Jessica Hepburn's 21 Miles and I felt hugely inspired by her attitude and, and her challenges and I thought, wow, this is incredible and if she can do something so positive out of something so awful, then I need to do something. <laughs> so I downloaded Couch to 5K and I started running because I wanted to make myself feel better and obviously hormones and fertility drugs and all of that you put on weight. So you not really run before? Not really, like on and off, but I wouldn't ever say I was a sporty person or someone who enjoyed exercise, that wasn't me. But suddenly I found this new passion that I never knew I had and I just, every time I'd get to that, 
wow, I can run for five minutes without stopping and that buzz when I'd get home. And I was like, wow. So I set myself the goal of getting to 5K and my sister said to me, why don't you sign up for the half marathon for Tommy's? And I was like, oh no, I'm not ready. I can't do that. And I was like, what have I got to lose? Like, let's give it a go. I, you know, everything else has been far scarier. Yeah. I'm sure I, you know, I'll give it a go. So I signed up and I got a place and I was like, oh my goodness, now I'm doing <laughs> I'm this. Committed. I'm committed and I've got to do it. And I was like, how am I going to keep motivated? And if running makes me feel this good, then maybe I can help other women who have been in similar situations because it's really isolating and it's really lonely. Yeah. And I can't be the only person that feels like this. Now, when you're looking at ways to look after your mental health and boost your fertility, yes, running is a brilliant one. It's also good to understand more about the holistic approach. And there's always lots of conversations about acupuncture. And that's why I love chatting with Narva Carmen about why this Eastern practice is so effective in terms of your fertility. I remember so clearly she described herself as a fertility detective. And here you'll hear how Narva helps the women who come to see her. The way I work personally is quite technical. So I would say I would deal with the emotional side of things and the mindset in two ways. Firstly, if there's there's always issues about around identity, who we are as women, our sexuality, our relationship with our partner, how our sex life can be affected, our experience of being fertility challenged in a world where it looks like everybody around you has children. Mm. And those are all things that I don't have time or expertise to hold in my practice. So I have people I refer to who I've been working with for a very long time who are really good at that. I, I tend to, to, to sort of outsource to that. But we, from a Chinese medicine point of view, see the emotion and the spirit as just part of the chi picture. So I do treat it from that point of view because what I do see is when I'm working, most of my, my stuff is complex autoimmune conditions like PCOS or endometriosis, recurrent miscarriage, unexplained infertility, you know, many failed cycles of IVF, and then they finally come to me. So a lot of my work that I see from a chi point of view, we work around shen or spirit. And there's a, a massive connection between shen and spirit and uterus. And so a lot of the time to change an ovulatory pattern or to help someone who has PCOS, who has a really regular cycle, become regular, to, which allows them to conceive naturally, you are working through the shen, the spirit and the heart. To influence the hormone. But because I work quite technically, I also want to see all your blood tests. I want to see all your scan results. I want to know as much from a Western medical point of view as possible so I can translate that into Chinese medicine, treat, retest from a Western medical point of view and see a difference. It's fascinating. And how, how many women are you seeing dealing with PCOS and endometriosis? And do you think there is enough awareness that acupuncture can be something that can be used to, to help when women are trying to deal with the symptoms of, of, of both of these two? I see a lot of it. Um, which always makes me sad because when you're given a diagnosis of endometriosis or PCOS, it's a very negative one. Mm. When in fact, I always like to say to my clients that PCOS, for example, is a, is a communication problem. It's not a structural one. It's not a, a mental one. Yeah. Okay. And in fact, PCOS women are born with more primordial follicles than anyone else. They are more fertile than most women. And as their hormones hormone levels naturally decline as they head toward menopause they will still be more fertile than most women because their hormones will come down and they'll start to ovulate and most of the later in life babies that i see arrive naturally pcos women but that message isn't communicated and really the only obstruction to conception with pcos pcos is usually a, a too late ovulation hmm. so 
if you look at some of the PCOS books that are out now, the A to Z of PCOS, PCOS for Dummies, most of these books or any of, yeah, most of the books I've seen, actually, I'm just thinking through, they all mention acupuncture in some way. So I do think there is an increasing awareness of it, but I would like to, I would like more people to know about it and then to give me the time to work in order to avoid having to go down that fertility route if they don't absolutely have to. And the final conversation in this episode is a chat Kate and I had with Danny Griffiths, who I've trained under to become a Freedom Fertility Formula Specialist. As along with Kate, I am now offering more emotional support to you. And here you can get an overview of how I'm working from Danny and why it's so important for you to access emotional support. First and foremost, from the counselling perspective, we're hearing, you know, that the very first thing we do is to hear somebody's story of pain. Because for a lot of women, that's not heard. They don't share it. It's a big secret. So we start off from that place of listening to understand so that we can then draw a line in the sand, if you like, and build out a strategy for them with regards to how they can move forward. So this is where the coaching comes in. So that we're starting to say, how do you want your life to be? And of course, the mind-body connection comes in because this work does support them getting pregnant. So often we say mind-body, but it's body-mind. So by working on the mind, you can influence the body. Sometimes we look at the body to influence the mind. And it's a, a complete combination of these things to help a person. And the way I see it is that obviously people are coming to us because they want to get pregnant. But actually, and you know this because you've done a similar survey to me, when you are so struggling, what is the one thing that they would love is to be able to handle the day-to-day. Now, the interesting thing for me is that as a hypnotherapist, as someone who's fully focused on how the mind influences the body, if we help a person take care of themselves and are giving them tools and techniques and strategies to help them handle that day-to-day, it will then support that mind-body connection. So this is why I don't say call yourself a fertility coach because you know some fertility coaches will bring in nutrition. I would say when I explore what people are doing with fertility coaching, there's still a big emphasis on what's happening in the body, the body first. The person is kind of second rate, if you like, to making sure that the body's okay. But for me personally, I think if we don't look after the, the emotional well-being, everything else is compromised. Absolutely. I think we always consider the physical aspects first. You know, women will be going through, you know, seeing their doctors, going through seeing a consultant, seeing fertility treatments, and we always consider those physical aspects first. And all the while, while we're doing that, the mind is suffering. And so to bring those two and have those two together is so vitally important. And that's that's why I don't call myself a coach. I call myself a fertility nurse consultant because I, I'm looking at it in the, the holistic way, which I think is so much more important for me anyway, than for the way I practice. For me, that is what I have to do. Yeah, absolutely. And as Natalie, as you know, my, my big thing, like I've never actually worked as a traditional hypnotherapist anyway, and my massive passion is about helping people to understand emotions more usefully. Even where there's a lot of emotions education these days, I'm, I don't believe it's done particularly well. I think people are still in the camp of good and bad. So that's a, a massive drive for me. So although we are talking about the mind, it's about our emotional well-being, which actually connects both. 
So I really hope this episode has been a helpful guide to the many episodes in our Fertility Support Vault, which you can visit via thefertilitypodcast.com. And I'll put all the links in the show notes. And it's always really great to hear your thoughts on this episode. And hopefully it has been useful, which you can also do via the website. And one final thank you to our episode sponsor, Parlour, because whether you are curious about your fertility, ready to start trying or need some extra support, if things aren't going the way you planned, the Parlour app is here to help. And for a limited time, Fertility Podcast listeners can get £100 worth of discounts or in-app features. You just need to go to myparlor.com to create an account or download the app on the App Store and use the code PARLOR100 when choosing your membership plan. That's it from me for now. Thank you as always for your support. And until next time, 